0: I've been asked a few times recently, actually just in the last week or 10 days, when I knew I was called to teach God's Word and how that happened. And it's interesting because um, as I looked back and thought about that, and one was for our new members class we're having here at Trinity, you know, there's never been a sense of calling. I was um, blessed to be led to the Lord by a friend in high school by the name of Tony Lee, who never really gave me an option. It wasn't like some were called and some weren't called. I mean, I had been a Christian for what felt like a few weeks. It may have been a few months when she said to me, now it's time for you to start a small group. It's time for you to start teaching and you to start discipling, as if I knew what the word discipling meant. And so I figured, okay, that's what you do. That's what new believers do. We multiply. And so I invited, I thought, well, I'll start start at the top. I invited several of the girls on the cheerleading squad to my house to give them the gospel. And so as they were preparing to come over, I had a couple days to prepare, so I opened God's Word, who knows where, and just started studying and expounding the Scriptures on pieces of paper. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had this great opportunity in that there was a knock at the door while I was preparing, and it was a Jehovah Witness, so I thought, well, I'll try it out on her. So I tried out my message on this Wonderful woman at my front door, completely freaked her out. She never came back. So the next day, the girls come over. There's about six or seven of them. They come over, kind of eyes wide, you know, what are we going to be doing here? And I go to open my Bible to get my message notes, and they're not there. And all I can think of is that the Jehovah Witness stole them. (laughs) And so what do I do that go, uh, okay, Philippians 3, (laughs) And I flipped, literally flipped, opened the Bible and said, God, where do you want to go? And I read the verses and I expounded them, which had to have been hilarious. And one of the girls in that group named Laura prayed to follow Jesus Christ. That specific passage convicted her heart, caused a revival, and brought her new life. And at that moment, even though I didn't know the verse, The reality that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, became absolutely alive right before my eyes. Like I said, I didn't even know the verse existed at that time in Hebrews. But I was privileged to get to watch how much it's not about me. How little it has to do with me. That it's a work of the Spirit of God using the Word of God that brings new life to people. In my journey as a, as a teacher that has moved from, you know, small group settings to larger settings and back and forth and wherever God asks me to go, um, I have unfortunately made things more complicated than they need to be. In a desire to handle the Word accurately, which is a command of Scripture, and to be faithful to the Scriptures, I've complicated it. I know I've complicated it and in a desire to feed well, I think sometimes I have and don't don't say amen or clap. I have brought out way too many courses to eat. And sometimes it's kind of like that bucket at the island you guys ever take your kids to the island and the bucket fills and fills and fills and all of a sudden dumps. You know, sometimes I can see on your faces, stop already, the bucket's dumping. You've given me too much to chew on. And so in this journey I've had of, of teaching and wanting to be accurate with the word of God, I know there have been times that I have gotten in its way unintentionally. As I was praying on Tuesday about this specific message, about the Word of God, I mean, it's really great to teach a message on the Word of God. It's kind of like, where, how do you dress when you're going to teach a message on not letting your adornment be on the outer clothing? You know, I had to teach that one time, and I struggled for a week of what to wear, you know. And so here I'm teaching a message on the message of God on the Word of God, from the Bible, about the Bible, and pretty intense and overwhelming. And so I'm driving to our leader meeting, and I'm praying, Lord, it just seems like what I have right now is simple. And I'm wondering if there's something deeper you want to say. And I was crying out to him, and he said, what makes you think it's simple? And so I felt that that was my answer, but, you know, of course he knows me. And so I'm at the leader meeting. At the end of the leader meeting, one of the leaders came to me and said, Patty, I had a dream about you. And you can test whether this is from the Lord or not. But the message from the Lord was, keep it simple. (laughs) She said, you got it so complicated that you even started singing. (laughs) I've never done that. I may have overwhelmed you like a fire hose, but I've never been singing. And she said, it was so complicated that a horse came through the room, and we left with the horse. (laughs) So I decided, (laughs) I don't want you to leave with the horse. So as a teacher, I live between the tension and you, as one who gives the word of God to your children, your neighbors. God has called each of you to, to be teachers. We live in this tension between being accurate with it and being good students of it and complicating it and making it about us rather than about God, of forgetting that it's God's word that changes lives, not us. We get to come along for the ride when we do handle it accurately. But it's God that does the work. It's God that stirs by the Spirit of God, using the Word of God to change lives. And that's why I love Nehemiah 8. Here is the climax of Nehemiah, and yet where's Nehemiah? He's barely mentioned. Don't you love that? Here's where life change really happens. I mean, there's been restoring, there's been rebuilding, but the revival, the change lives, we barely hear Nehemiah. Now we do get introduced to Ezra who is a very godly man who did study to accurately handle the scriptures and to teach them. But even he is in the sideline. God is central in Nehemiah 8. It is all about him. It's about his spirit stirring in his people by the word of God a revival in their lives. Again, we have this incredible man, Ezra, but I don't think he just, and I don't think Ezra just threw a bunch of scrolls on the ground and said, let's see where we're going to start like I did in my living room. He did set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules to Israel. Now, what we know about Ezra is that he had been sent 14 years earlier to Jerusalem by Artaxerxes to establish the temple sacrifices and to teach the people the law. We don't know why exactly it took so long for this to happen in such a such a way as it did in nehemiah's time but it was god's timing ezra's priestly heart his fervent study are are great examples for us but we must not put him on a pedestal much like we've been trying not to put nehemiah on a pedestal it's not about ezra and what are the people even chanting for not ezra but for ezra to read the law of the lord it's God's presence that centers stage. I love what J. R. Packer says. God now acted in a way that put his human agents in the shade. Oh, amen, to be put in the shade. He visited his people, preempting their attentions and making his presence felt among them in a way that had not been the case before. Sometimes I think that's how God's presence is felt is by getting human agents out of the way. Amen? So the Spirit of God gave the people of God everything they needed for new life by using the Word of God. And I believe He wants to do this for us today. So there's much for us to receive from Nehemiah 8 about what it means to have a revival. First, we see that they came together as one man. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then again, verse 5, and as he opened it, all the people stood. What we see is they're coming together as one man, and they're wanting something to happen. The Spirit of God had already stirred within them a desire. They were coming as one people crying out for new life. We've been together, we've had living encounters with God. We've seen these burnt stones come to life. We know you are the God that breathes life. And we want that. We want new life, but we want it as a community. They didn't do this at the temple where it wasn't a formal worship service where the men where excuse me, the women and the children would be excluded. Don't you love that as they've been building as a community, now they want to be revived as a community. So they go to the Watergate rather than to the temple. Their brotherly love had been built. Remember, the people had been set free. These daughters, you can just picture these daughters that were once in slavery, now with their families all as one people. In this mood of rare responsiveness, they're basically saying, We want the law. It was like a rock concert. According to J.I. Packer, the way the Hebrews written, it was like, can you imagine? I would love it next week. In fact, why don't you guys just plan on it? We want the Bible. We want. I mean, I just want you all stand in ovation and, and just shout out. That's what they were doing. Give us the law. They weren't asking for Nehemiah. They weren't asking for Ezra. They were asking for the Word of God. It wasn't totally spontaneous. A platform had been built, and so we know that probably Nehemiah was responsible for that. So there was a a stirring within the hearts of the leaders to know that God wanted to move, but the response was spontaneous. We can create an environment. We can plan an event. We can prepare a study, but it's God that changes hearts, no matter how beautiful what we built is. They were attentive. They were listening. They were searching. They knew that all they needed was this. All they needed was the law of God, which was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So not just the, the laws in terms of Leviticus, but also the story of God and how he works in human life. They knew that in there was everything they needed to be revived now. They had finally realized that their mindless superstitions and their lack of understandings had been what caused their dryness, their damage, and their distance. Ladies, do we believe that? Do we believe that this is everything we need for our dryness, our damage, our distance from God? Are we still looking to mindless superstition, to the wisdom of Oprah, to solve our problems? Hosea 4:6 My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. They knew full well that as they began to listen to the voices of the nations, that that led to their dryness, their damage, their distance, their idolatry. They had been there, done that, got the t-shirt and did not want to go back. They were stirred by the spirit of God to want more than physical restoration. More than a building and a wall, they wanted new hearts. They wanted community. They wanted God to dwell among them. J.I. Packer says, The Holy Spirit had worked on these people, giving them an interest in God, a concern for divine things, and a desire for God's blessing that was altogether out of the ordinary. God can't give us what is out of the ordinary until we're ready to get rid of the ordinary. Until we're ready to say, I don't want to listen to the other stuff. If we want what is out of the ordinary, what is really going to meet our need, what is really miraculous, we're going to have to silence the other voices. When it's the spirit of God, it will be a craving for the word of God and nothing else. No additives, no preservatives, no MSG. <laughs> and I love that they're standing in ovation. Do you love that? Now this isn't Bible worship. They're committed to the text, but only because the text tells them of the one who has restored them, rebuilt their wall, and wants to revive them. They are not worshipping the Bible. They're worshipping the Lord of the Word. Not the Word, but the Lord of the Word. They know that in it is everything they need to experience intimacy with him, to know him, to trust him, to dwell with him to have a deep, satisfying knowledge of Him. A.W. Tozer says, The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and center of their lives. This book cannot contain who God is. It gives us a glimpse, It gives us a picture, it gives us a knowledge, a deeper understanding. Nothing else can, but he's much bigger than this. It gives us a taste, an understanding, a deeper knowledge, a delight in his presence, a sweetness to the center of our hearts. That's what they desired as one community before one God. So Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands as they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now that's an interesting picture, isn't it? Also, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Amazing. Before one God, worshipping. And this is why we know they're not worshipping the Word of God, but the God of the Word, is because they're worshiping Him. They're crying out, Lord, Jehovah. This word Lord, again, is Jehovah. It's covenant God. My God, as we talked about a few weeks ago. The God who has promised to restore me. They are calling out to to their personal covenant God. They're blessing Him, which means kneeling and they're calling him also Elohim, the great Elohim, the great creator of the universe. So my daddy, my God, the creator of the universe, I kneel before you. Wow. Talk about revival that would happen in our hearts if we really took that position physically, spiritually. And they said, "So it be. So be it." Amen. This was an anticipation For their God to dwell among them. An expectation that he would breathe life into them, his living stones, through the word. It's important to know that this was not a desire to be entertained. They did not walk into the service and go, I sure hope there's something in it for me today. I really hope I get some tools to deal with my marriage or ten steps to make better kids. Or five steps to win my friend to Christ. They weren't looking for tools for life. They weren't looking for ways to cope. They weren't looking for ways to make life better. They were looking for an encounter with the living God. When we have an encounter with the living God, He will take care of all the other steps. Yes, amen. Say that again, amen. We bypass the person of God trying to get the stuff of God. When God says, no, come to me. Come to me. Want me. And the rest will come. They didn't want entertainment. They didn't want tools for life. They wanted holy words from His holy mouth. They were overwhelmed by the privilege of this restoration. This privilege of rebuilding. This privilege. Do we see it as a privilege? Are we in awe of it? Do we marvel at it? So much so that their hands were raised in anticipation, expectation, but they were also humbled. They kept their faces to the ground. And they wanted more and they wanted more. And so they stood for five hours. That's just amazing to you that they stood for five hours. And some like to use this for an excuse for really long messages. I'm not going to use that as an excuse to go long today. They didn't have the Word of God with them at home. I think a better application for us is, are you spending hours in it at home, alone? Are you wanting it? Are you desiring it? I don't think the application is are we willing to sit and listen to it for six hours, which I pray we are, as we see in our believers in the underground church. But are we just even neglecting it in our living room? Is it covering with dust? They waited, they stood five hours, no coffee, no scones, man. This is intense. Although we were talking at the leader meeting that probably the moms had fish crackers because you're thinking, what are these kids doing? They were laboring to teach. The Levites were laboring to teach. And the people were laboring to understand. Do we labor to understand? Or do we say, okay, Chick, you're not entertaining me, so I'm really not going to listen to you any longer. Are they laboring to under? They were laboring to understand. The Levites were laboring to teach. Everybody was doing their part. Revival happens when we all do our part. It's not just the teacher preparing and preaching. It is the people receiving and being willing to be broken, to be hearers, to be hearers and doers. Each one, as a community, was doing their place of expecting holy words from the holy God. This word um, translating or interpreting in there, it's hard to know if the Levites were actually translating it because in captivity... They believe that the Hebrews started t- uh, learning Aramaic, started speaking Arama- Aramaic, which was a dialect of Hebrew. So were the Levites translating the language, or were they just explaining it? Commentators disagree. The bottom line is they were making sure that people knew what was being said. They were saying, are you okay? Okay, okay, Ezra, keep going. There Everyone over here is okay. Okay, Ezra says, okay, stop. Okay, do you guys know what's happening? Do you understand? Are you, are you, are you getting? Are you understanding? Not just hearing the word of the Lord, but are you understanding it? The Levites met them where they were and helped them understand. And this is why I'm so thankful I'm, and pray to, to pray even more fervently for our small group leaders here, of these community groups we have here. They're, they're your Levites. They're saying, okay, how did it go at home as you're, as you're looking over Nehemiah? Are you understanding? Are we ready to move on to Nehemiah 10? An incredible part of being revived by God. It was exposition with the intent to apply, to obey it, to not be entertained by it or to, be, to grow intellectually, but to apply it. Again, Ezra read in sections, the Levites made sure the people understood it, and then they continued. And this word understand is referenced so much in the chapter that it is the emphasis, that there was understanding. There was no question about the seriousness of the people. They were working they were worshiping, they were wanting what God wanted for them. They knew that it was dangerous to have passion without grounding. Ladies, it's very dangerous to have passion for the Lord without grounding in the truth. I love um, when I have had the privilege of being in Central Asia, something that will happen with those who are... Who are uh, literate especially, is that when we will, when we go and we teach, as soon as um, we start actually doing the teaching, no one looks at me anymore. They're, most of them are writing stuff down, and I'm thinking, okay, are you really paying attention anymore? What's going on? And come to find out when you're done, when I'm done, they'll come and they'll ask me questions because they want to know they're getting it right because their intent was to take what I taught and now go teach it in the regions. In fact, you can pray for one of our sisters, Galena, who is in the process of translating much into Uzbek and into Russian, so that the leaders can go and teach, reteach. But that's what they do. They write it down, but they want to understand all of it. They want to understand the context. Some of the questions they ask me are just blow me away. Well, are you sure about this or this? Because when I teach this, I want to make sure it's accurate. So beautiful. R.C. Sproul says, here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's Word, not so much because it's difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull and boring, but because it's work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or lack of passion. Our problem is that we're lazy. Oh, what a conviction of our laziness when you do go to the underground church, when they are willing to sit for six, seven hours and then say, No, do you want to do this all over again? They want to know. They want to know more. They're so hungry. There is no laziness. They're working to understand. And they understand that this involves interaction, taking it apart in a community, so it's sealed in our hearts. And this is what we see the people doing with Nehemiah and the Levites. Ezra, they're taking it apart in small groups so that it's sealed to their heart, so that they're held accountable for what they know, so that they can stir up in one another To see that this is all they have ever needed, and now how they will walk in revival. It is dangerous to have passion without grounding, but it's also dangerous to have grounding without passion. It is dangerous to have grounding in God's Word and no passion. And that is part of my prayer and hope, and Linda's and the leadership here of our small groups too, is that as you are being grounded, that you then have passion for what you're learning, that it's not head knowledge, but it's passion. The Spirit of God, by the Word of God, gave the people all they needed, just like Laura in my living room. And what is their response? They responded in three ways. First, weeping. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Ladies, we weep when we are overcome with emotion. Before the people could assimilate these truths, before they could apply them to their lives, before they could obey them, they had to first be undone by the ways in which they hadn't. They had to let themselves hurt. They had to let themselves be broken, undone over their earlier disobedience. Listen to what J.A. Packer says, The Holy Spirit is too often obstructed and quenched by self-absorbed casualness about serving God, deep level unconcern as to whether or not we please Him, and deep-rooted unwillingness to face up to moral and behavior challenges in our lives. Don't miss this. Don't follow the horse. Pay attention. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is too often obstructed and quenched by self-absorbed casualness about serving God deep level unconcern as to whether or not we please Him, and deep-rooted unwillingness to face up to moral and behavioral challenges in our lives. If we want revival, we're going to have to not be casual. If we want revival, we're going to need to have a deep concern as to whether we please God. If we want to really come alive, we will have to face the moral and behavioral challenges in our lives if we want to experience all we were created for, if we want to really have all that we really need, these are the things we must do. The Spirit of God, using the Word of God, gave the people what they needed, and that was first brokenness. It's important to know that the the brokenness was not pulpit dramatics, was it? It wasn't special music and a solo. It wasn't lighting, mood lighting. It wasn't a full band, was it? It was not an emotional manipulation by any stretch. It was a reading of the Word and then a translating and making sure they understood it. And they were broken. It was pure Word of God, Spirit of God. It was a willingness to feel, to be open to God to an unusual degree. Ladies, we don't need mood lighting. We don't need special music. We need a willing heart to, be, to fall apart. We need to be willing to be broken. We need to be willing to hear. The Puritans were known to pray for the gift of tears. They knew that repentance was a gift from God, and to weep is a gift from God. I started praying for that a few years ago. I should have probably stopped a while ago. I never used to. Pray. I never used to cry over anything. I know that may be very shocking to many of you, and I still, in daily life, don't cry much. It's mostly when I teach. And I prayed and prayed because I knew that part of the reason I never wept was because my heart was hard. It was unwilling to be vulnerable because of past hurt. And so I prayed for the gift of tears, ladies. If you are like I was, pray for the gift of tears. There is something incredibly cleansing about being broken by the Word of God, about recognizing that your mocking did nail him to the tree. Because until we recognize that, we also can't experience the joy of what he's done. They wept over the realization of their disobedience. They also wept over the realization of what they could have been spared. Ladies, we often stop short of this. We may weep over what we've done. We may weep over our sin, but do we weep over the missed blessing that we would have had if we had been obedient? I think that builds trust in God. That builds hope in Him. That enables us to know Him better. I love last semester when we when we went down that path and we dealt with um, unbiblical divorces. And I had some women come and speak to me who had realized as they learned God's word that in the past they had been divorced in a way that was um, not biblical. And they not only wept out of uh, repentance, which God, of course, met them and forgave them, but they also wept over what they missed. Because had they stayed and been obedient, who knows how God would have blessed them? I think it's important to weep over both. Because when we weep over what God could have given... Had we been faithful, it builds trust that our God does bless, that he does have good things for us. But there's also a time to stop weeping, and there's a time to rejoice. J.I. Packer says, The root of spiritual revival, both in individuals and in communities, was, is, and always will be the vivid realization of God's holiness, goodness, mercy, and the perversity, shamefulness, offensiveness, and suicidal folly that he sees in our personal sins. And again, that's that going back and recognizing how we hurt ourselves with our disobedience and what we could have experienced had we been obedient. These Israelites were so broken that the reading and the preaching had to stop because there's a time to weep and mourn, and there's a time for joy and celebration. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites stepped in to remind the people that the whole purpose of brokenness, the whole purpose of repentance is joy. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Why does He want us to be broken? Why does He want us to have the gift of tears? So because those who mourn are the only ones that will be comforted. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they and they alone shall be comforted. There is no comfort until there is mourning and weeping. You've been broken. Now, experience the joy of your restoration. Experience the joy of your rebuilding. Experience the joy of your revival. There's beauty. There's glory. You need both sides, people. There's nothing inherently spiritual about continuing to churn up people emotionally. There's nothing spiritual about weeping about it for days and days and days. There's something very spiritual about accepting the forgiveness of God and moving forward in that freedom. Freedom. I remember being at a retreat years and years ago, um, and we had a speaker, and she really turned women up and got them to confess all kinds of past sin, things that, in my opinion, shouldn't have been confessed before their sisters until their husbands were told. And then, at the end, the MC said, now the speaker needs to go back to her room and rest, so don't talk to her. And I was so grieved because she left them weeping. Without any joy, without any truth of forgiveness, without any hope. There is nothing spiritual about getting a bunch of women to cry. Unless it ends in celebration. That is incredibly honoring to God. And that is an incredible testimony to the nations around them. And that is what Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites are saying. Yes, repent. Yes, be broken. But now go celebrate. We want the nations to see both sides of our God. That yes, we weep, but we are also comforted. We experience sin deeper than anyone, but we experience joy deeper than anyone because our sin is paid for. Amen? The Word is what you need to be undone by your sin, but it is also what you need to handle your undoneness. Often you'll you'll notice that when I'm, I'm going to start right now, often when I'm teaching, I will start to weep at times. And a lot of times what it is is because as I'm teaching you something, like right now, the Lord convicts me of something. And that is why I have to end every week with the gospel. (laughs) Because I know that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And what's interesting is, is when I teach at night, I don't cry very often. And I was thinking, why is that, Lord? And this passage really helped me out, realizing that he has already moved me from 9 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night to joy and feasting. So it's all about dark chocolate at night. And so there's this weeping and then there's this walking. Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people and said, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Go lean into your new life. Lean into it. Embrace it, celebrate it, mark it, eat the best of food, drink the sweetest of drinks, and send to others who don't have. Celebrate the Spirit's gift of this understanding. Celebrate the Spirit's gift that this is all you need to be undone and to be done again. And also I love it when I hear about you girls going out for lattes. After Sisters, Sister, Chick-fil-A, wherever you need to go with your kids can play. And I pray that you're celebrating. I pray that you're celebrating what God, any new understanding that God has given you. It is right to do that. It is right to seal it. It seals it in our hearts. Celebrations make truth real. They also bring conviction to us if it hasn't been real. As we go out and celebrate someone with us who maybe didn't let the truth of God penetrate her heart, then there's conviction for her that I want to celebrate too. And so there's this conviction that also comes with celebration. Sometimes we don't celebrate because we, even though we believe God forgave us, we can't forgive ourselves. We stay stuck in this weeping thing because we can say, well, I get that God can forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. Can I just tell you bluntly that that's idolatry? You have decided that you are God. You've decided that what you think about your life and what you've done supersedes what God says. To not forgive yourself, what God has forgiven of you, is to make yourself God. I don't know about you, but that really frees me. When I put it that way, it's actually a form of self absorption If God says you've been free, you need to receive it. Celebrate. The joy of the Lord is your strength, and it will remove that idolatry. This is a testimony of the nations. The nations need to see both sides of us, people. They need to see our brokenness and they need to see our joy. They need to see that true repentance is the realization of God's comfort, His greatness, His holiness. And then we see that the people are willing. They are willing to then keep going. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he, Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rules. I love this. Israel doesn't just, just, you know, stand as one people before one God, weep and celebrate and be, okay, we're good. I'm good. I'm good, Ezra. I'm good, Nehemiah. I'm good, people. i I've, I've cried. I've eaten my Chick-fil-A. I'm set to go. No! They have experienced the reality of God's Word, to undo and do. And they want more. They want more of that. I want some more of that. They recognize that there's much they didn't understand yet. There's much that this Word tells them about their God, and they want all of it. And so day by day they listen and they obey, and they find this Feast of the Booths, and they realize it's coming, and they know that not only is every word in here something they need, but every celebration is a reminder of who they are and who God is. And so they trek out, grab their palm branches and myrtle branches and willow trees, and they build these tents and they have a church camp out. Now, that does not sound like a lot of fun to me. I don't know about you guys, but after four kids, I don't camp anymore. My husband calls it bait and switch because I told him I liked camping when I met him, and I don't do it now. <laughs> but with great joy, they gathered all the materials to live in booths, to live in tents for seven to eight days in the temple area on top of their houses. It was a huge ordeal to live in tents, these booths. It celebrated God's freeing them from bondage in Egypt. It was a reminder that God had freed them from their sin and he was taking them to the promised land. And in those 40 years that they wandered, every year they celebrated the quickness that God freed them from slavery and the fact that they had to live in tents. And it was also a reminder that even when you enter the promised land, people, you're strangers, you're aliens, and everything that you experience about me is just a taste of what you will experience when I bring the Redeemer. What you will experience when the Redeemer comes rescues you from your sin permanently and secures your eternal home. God sent that Deliverer 470 years later. And he lived in in a tent for 30 years. He emptied himself of being fully God, took on the form, he remained fully God, excuse me, he emptied himself of his glory, remained fully God, and took on the form of man. And he lived in a tent among us for 30 years. He lived perfectly. He died sacrificially to pay for our sin. And then he rose triumphantly so that He could fulfill every command for you that although you promise today you're going to fulfill, you will still break. He came to be the yes to every promise in this Word. He came to be the point of every celebration. And that is why on this exact day of this exact celebration, 470 some odd years later, He said... On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus is actually at the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I am the fulfillment. I am the fulfillment of every command. I am the fulfillment of every promise. I am the point of this celebration. Every word in here is all you need because every word in here is me. I am the Word of God. Are you dry? Are you damaged? Are you distant? Come to me, all who are thirsty. Flip open to Philippians or anywhere else you like. I'm here. to not risk the danger of complicating. Lord, all I want to say is, Amen.